I, I was uh, uh, walking along a beach in Southern California once, and I saw a little boy poking sticks in a shell, in the shells. He would pick up shells along the seashore and poke them with a stick. And I stopped asking what he was doing. He said, I, I want to see if there's anything real in there. And uh, it strikes me that that's what people are doing to us, and that's what we do to one another. We're, we're looking for reality. People don't care how much we know. They don't care what we look like or what sort of accomplishments uh, we may have achieved. They're looking for someone and something that's real, that's authentic. And uh, this is Paul's concern in this opening chapter of Second Timothy. He describes Timothy as having an authentic faith. He's a true believer. He's authentically Christian. And uh, what we've been looking at are some of the marks of authenticity. What are the expressions of it? Uh, in the first paragraph, Paul thanks God that uh, Timothy has the real thing. He has a genuine faith, as Paul puts it. And uh, because he, is, he has that reality, in verse 6, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. One expression of reality is that uh, Timothy would use his gift we talked about that last week. Timothy's spiritual gift, the special endowment that he received from the Holy Spirit, was probably the gift of, of proclamation, of teaching and preaching the Scriptures. And uh, so, as Paul puts it, Timothy, since you have the real thing, I call upon you to, to share it, to give away your faith, to proclaim the gospel. And if Paul were standing here this morning, he would say the same thing to us. Give away your faith. One of the marks uh, of a real faith, one of the indications that we really believe the gospel is that we'll share it with people. We'll give it away. That's the first mark of authenticity. The second is described in the verses that follow, beginning with verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord are of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has abolished death or annulled it in the sense that it he has removed its sting. The appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. The second mark of authenticity is that we are unashamed of the gospel and we're willing to suffer for it. Paul was... Uh, was in prison. It uh, would not be good for Timothy to be associated with him, particularly in the minds of the Roman authorities. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this was the period of the of the Neronian persecutions, when the church was uh, was uh, was being uh, persecuted. When it was when Nero was trying to exterminate the church, and to be identified with Paul puts you in a certain amount of danger. And Timothy, being the timid young man that he was, would be inclined to, to shrink.
from the apostle and to shrink from his proclamation of the gospel, Paul says, don't be ashamed, don't be embarrassed by the gospel, but be willing to suffer for it. I suspect that all of us struggle with that admonition. We're inclined to be uh, timid and fearful about our proclamation of the gospel because though we will not suffer persecution to the extent that the apostle and Timothy did, we are likely to be rejected by our friends and associates and, and peers and the people that we would like to have respect us very much. As Jesus put it in John 17 in the Upper Room Discourse, uh, if you identify yourself with Christ, the world will hate you. The reason being that you, you will be very much unlike the world. They will not understand, and they're likely to reject you. But as Paul argues, that's all right. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be fearful about proclaiming the gospel. Because there is nothing else that will save the world. <laughs> that's his point. Uh, he argues here precisely as he argues in Romans 1.18. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he says, because it is the power of God into salvation. It's the only thing that can help this uh, blighted, uh, battered, seemingly hopeless world. So uh, don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now there are four things. And Paul says the, the gospel does. Let me read again verse 9. Paul calls upon Timothy to suffer for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Those are the first two uh, characteristics of the gospel. The results that uh, come to those who believe it. The gospel saves people. Now, that, that expression, uh, Jesus saves, or the gospel saves, bothers people. Jesus saves what? Uh, Jesus saves at Idaho First National? Jesus saves uh, tinfoil? What, what do you mean, Jesus saves? And that's one of those Christian terms that, is, that, is, uh, that has fallen into disrepute. The problem is that Christians, like everyone else, have a special vocabulary for talking about the things that they believe in. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus saves is a, is a legitimate expression, and it's one that we, that we need to hold on to. Every discipline has its own technical language. This past uh, weekend, I was talking to a friend of mine who sells software for a computer firm, and uh, I was asking him to explain to me what he does. And, and for about uh, 15 minutes, he told me exactly what he did. And I nodded my head like a dashboard doll the whole time. But I didn't understand a thing he said. I, none of it made any sense to me. Fifteen minutes later, when he was done, I had no more idea of what he did than when he started. Because he was using a, a, a technical argot, a kind of lingo that, uh, that explained well his product but didn't say anything to me. Now, the word salvation is a little bit like that. But we shouldn't give it up because it's a good word. Salvation simply means to deliver from peril, to deliver from danger. And that's exactly what our Lord has done for us. He saved us. Like no one else has saved us. Now, most of us have been delivered from danger somewhere along the line. We know what that's like. I, I can remember when I was a small child, 
fishing with my father in a creek in near Sokoxie, Missouri. We were putting out trot lines, and uh, uh, I was helping him tie them onto roots and, and trees that hung over the water. And I was, It was wintertime. It was cold. And I had on a pair of rubber boots and a heavy jacket, and I fell in. And I, I started to go down, and I was being swept down the, down the river, and I thought it was curtains. I can still remember it vividly today. And uh, just about the time I thought I was a goner, this big hand reached down out of the sky and just pulled me right out of the water. My father had run down the, the river, alongside the river, and crawled out on a tree that was projected out over the river. And as I swept by, he just grabbed me and pulled me out. Now, that's salvation. He delivered me from danger. <laughs> And that's what the Lord has done for us. He's, the, he's the, the tender giant who loves us, who reaches down for us and saves us. Now, the New Testament talks about salvation in three senses and in terms of three tenses. The scriptures tell us that we are saved in the past and we are being saved presently and we will be saved in the future. Paul says we're being saved in the past, not by our own works, but by his grace. Peter says we're being saved through faith unto salvation. And uh, the scriptures talk about a, a future salvation from judgment. We're saved from the past in the sense that we're delivered from the guilt of, of our past misdeeds. All of us have things in our life that we're, we're embarrassed about, things that we've done, things that have hurt others and And we're ashamed of ourselves for the things that we've done. But there's nothing we can do about the past. History is unrepeatable. You can't relive the past and do things better. And and very often we're hounded and haunted by that sense of of guilt over wrongdoing in the past. But you see, it's all right. We've been saved from the guilt of the past. It no longer can dominate us and tyrannize us, frustrate us. We've been saved in the past. And we are being saved right now. Paul says sin will not have dominion over you. Our Lord is in the process of delivering us daily from from the habits and the moods and the bad manners and the sins and things that that are so destructive to to the inner man and to our relationships with others. It doesn't happen overnight. And some of us have been so badly damaged by our past, we may never be be completely healthy until the Lord comes back and he and he perfects us then but but the process is ongoing he's at work to deliver us today from the sins that that dominate us that's that's the present ongoing salvation that we experience and there's a future salvation that awaits that awaits us all of us have that sense that there will be an accounting someday there is a a, a divine comeuppance we're, we're going to have to account for what we've done but that future salvation fears it, it frees us from the dread of a future judgment. We can, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, love his appearing and look forward to it, not because we're sinless, but because we're blameless. Our Lord paid the price for our sin. And there, as Paul puts it, is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. So we're saved. We're delivered from peril, past present, and future. Secondly, the, the power of the gospel is seen uh, in that uh, we're made more holy. He saved us 
and called us with a holy calling. That is a calling to be holy. A calling to be like God. That's another, uh, holiness is another one of those terms, I think, that uh, sometimes embarrass us, but it's, it's a good term. Holiness is a description of the, of the sum and substance of God's character. God is holy. And uh, you take all the attributes of God and put them together. That's holiness. And, and that's what, what God has called us to, to be like him, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. We are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. We're being conformed more and more to the, to the character of God. He, uh, he, he takes our tempers and begins to restrain them and enable us to, to control these outbursts of anger and wrath that are so destructive. He takes our catty uh, acid tongues and he, he, he changes them so that we become, uh, our tongues are used to help and heal rather than, than to hurt. Uh, he takes uh, uh, every aspect of our life that frustrates us and he begins to changes it, change us so that we become more, more loving, more gentle, more mellow people, easier to, to live with. He takes away the, the fear of losing so that we don't, we're not so grabby and, and possessive. We can give of our time and, and energy and our homes and our, our possessions. Uh, all of you, I'm sure, have heard of, of Chuck Colson, Charles Colson, who was described in, his, uh, uh, in the days when he was still in Washington, D.C., as, as a man who would run over his own grandmother for President Nixon's sake. He was ruthless in his use of his, his political power. And today he's a man uh, of great compassion whose, whose uh, heart goes out to the, the convicts in our society and the ex-convicts and their parents and he, uh, their, their families. And he spends his entire life ministering to the needs of people in our penitentiary. And you see, that's, that's what Paul means when, when he tells us that the gospel is a call to be holy. He God begins to work mysteriously in our, in our hearts to change us. I can't tell you how he does that. Uh, it, it, there is a process at work that's undetectable. It's quiet. It's, it's not always perceived, but it's relentless. We're being conformed more and more to the character and to the beauty and, and grace of our Lord Jesus. That's that call to be holy. And then uh, Paul says there is a fourth result of the gospel, a fourth manifestation of power. In verse 10, this gospel which was conceived in eternity and granted to us in time through the revelation of Christ. Uh, Verse 9, now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Death is, uh, is our great frustration. Uh, someone has said death is the most democratic of all institutions. It encompasses all of us. The death rate is, has been a, an almost consistent 100% from the very beginning. Every one of us has to face the grim reaper. We just uh, cannot avoid it. Everyone has to die. And yet somehow we know that there must be more. Than, than this. We were made for eternity, and yet death is there, inevitably. And it, 
and it frustrates us. Uh, what, what do you say to a dying man? How, how do you give counsel to a friend of yours, a man or a woman who's, who's terminal? What, what do you say? How do you help them? Uh, that's when I think the power of the gospel is, is revealed fully. I uh, have, on a number of occasions, talked to, to men that were uh, about to die. And I had that opportunity just uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, the family told me he didn't have long to live. He wasn't a believer. He was afraid of death. What do you say when you walk in the room, the family gathers, and, and they want you to say something hopeful and helpful? Do you say, well, uh, remember the medal that you won in Korea for courage. Buck up. Face death courageously. Or uh, think of the Porsche that's sitting out in your parking lot and uh, the effort that's gone into making the money that uh, has made you, has put you in this particular position in, in society. You know, those, those things are hollow and empty and meaningless at a time like that. What do you say? All I could say was what Jesus said. I just bent over and uh, had to almost get down into his face and, and took his hand and, and said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You know, that's hope. That's help. And uh, he prayed with me to receive Jesus. And when, when he goes to be with the Lord, he'll, uh, when he dies, he'll go to be with the Lord. He'll step right into, into his presence. See, the, the, the great question is what, what is on the other side? What is it like to die? Where do we go? What happens to us? How do we know? Has somebody been there and come back to tell us? As Hamlet put it in his somber way, ah, that's, that's the rub, you see. Someone has to go there and come back and tell us, well, Jesus has been there. He's been through death. And he comes back to meet us and to take us with him when we die. And that takes all the dread out of dying. As Jesus said, in my Father's house are many places to dwell. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, and where I am, there you may be also. And that takes away the fear of, of death. Understanding and believing the gospel results in death being abolished, not done away with, everyone dies, but, but the sting of death is removed. The fear of death, the dread of it is, is taken away. You know, I can honestly say I, I do not fear death. I, I probably, like the rest of you, fear dying. I don't like the thought of uh, the pain that might be associated with, uh, with death. But I don't fear death because I know that death simply means that I step into the presence of God with the Lord Jesus. As Malcolm Muggeridge put it, I look forward to death with colossal joy. There was a, a, there's a poem that I came across this past week by James Montgomery that says it well, forever with the Lord, amen, so let it be. Life from the dead is in that word, is immortality. Here in the body spent, absent from him I roam, yet nightly pitch my moving tent, a day's march nearer home. So when my latest breath, for when my latest breath shall rend the veil in twain, 
By death I shall escape from death and life eternal gain. Knowing as I am known, how shall I love that word and oft repeat the throne forever, uh, repeat before the throne forever with the Lord. I read this past week of a man who uh, was told by his doctor that he would die, and he probably would die that day. And he got so excited at the prospect of seeing the Lord and so adrenalized that he lived on for four more days. (laughs) Terribly disappointed. But you see, that's what the gospel does. It removes from us the fear of death and replaces it with this sense of eager anticipation of being forever with the Lord. But, as Paul puts it, he does not merely abolish death. He brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. Immortality explains the quality of that life. Life is not merely endless existence. It is an incorruptible life, an immortal life, a life that begins now and never ends. It's a quality of life that we call eternal life. The problem with mere human life or biological life is that it's corruptible. It's always decaying. It's declining. As uh, Roy Hobbs put it in in The Natural, he said, uh, I I never thought life would turn out like this. Most of us start out life thinking that things are going to go well for us. Hope springs eternal, but life never does work out the way we thought it would because there is a, uh, there is a, a process of decay and disintegration that's inherent in biological life because of sin in the world. But the life that our Lord grants is an eternal quality of life. It endures. Now, these are the elements of the gospel that make it powerful. We are, by the grace of God, saved, called with a holy calling. Death has been abolished, and life and immortality are brought to light through the gospel. And all of this, we're told, was first conceived in the mind of God in eternity, but revealed historically in the person of Christ. Do you realize that uh, God has always loved you from the very beginning, before there was a beginning? In eternity, God loved you. And God longed for you. More than anything else, he he wanted a relationship with you. And he he wanted you to worship him. But he knew that sin separated us from himself. And so uh, he became man. The central fact of Christian faith is the incarnation. What we say as Christians that's so important is that God became a man. He identified with us. And he was revealed in history. That, that's that revelation of grace that, that Paul is describing in verse 10. As the uh, Apostles' Creed put it, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a real person. He lived in real history. We know when he lived. We know when he died. There's no question about, about his, uh, his real existence. And uh, as the Apostles teach us, Jesus is just as real. He was manifest. In the flesh, he became one of us. So that that salvation that was conceived in the mind of God becomes ours uh, through the incarnation. The gospel then is the, is the story that, that leaves nothing out. And the gospel is the story that, that saves us and makes us new. And therefore, we shouldn't be ashamed of it. Uh, Jerome, in his commentary on this uh, passage, writes... 
The preaching of the gospel is the least among all systems of teaching, for at the first it produces no confidence in its truth, preaching the Godhead of a man, the death of God, and the offense of a cross. Compare a doctrine of this kind with the dogmas of the philosophers with their books, their splendid eloquence, and the style of their discourses, and you will see by how much the seed of the gospel is less than all other seeds. But when these are grown, they prove nothing that is penetrating, nothing vigorous, nothing vital. And the effeminate growth produces only poor garden stuff and herbs which quickly wither and waste. But this preaching, that is the preaching of this gospel, on the other hand, which at the outset seems so small, when it has been sown either in the mind of a believer or in the world at large, springs up into no poor garden stuff, but it grows into a tree. Have you seen that happen? Have you seen the gospel change the lives of people? I mentioned several years ago a story that I heard about a woman whose husband was converted, who had been an alcoholic before he uh, became a believer, and who used uh, the family resources to uh, to purchase uh, uh, alcohol. And uh, this woman was confronted by a friend over the issue of Jesus turning water into wine. And she said, well, uh, it, it doesn't, it's never troubled me that Jesus could turn water into wine. I know he could because with my husband, he turned beer into groceries. And uh, that's exactly what, what the gospel does for us. It changes us. It's powerful. Therefore, we shouldn't be ashamed of it. Now, uh, Paul says, this is what I preach in verse 11. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Paul was a learned man. He'd been trained in the best schools of his era, and there are all sorts of things that he could have preached. I mentioned before that he must have known well the Greek classics, and he read them and understood them, but he didn't preach philosophy. He just preached Christ. When he went to Corinth, the citadel of, of humanism and and, uh, and the, the center of intellectual life in the Greek world at that time. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He proclaimed it, even though it seemed to be, a, uh, it seemed to be an ineffectual and, and weak message at the outset, as Jerome put it. He preached it because he knew that it had power, that inherent in the gospel is the power of God that can change lives. That's what we need to do. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. We mustn't be embarrassed by it. We must be courageous in our proclamation of it. Not brash, but bold, forthright. Because it's the only thing that can save. And it needs to be delivered in its utter simplicity. We mustn't complicate the message. It's really very simple. We need to let people know that all they have to do is is come to Jesus and accept him. They don't have to clean up their lives. They don't have to have more spit and polish. All they have to do is believe that Jesus was God himself who came to earth and died for them and took upon himself their sin and then was raised for their justification and that one of these days he's going to come back and take them to himself And they'll be eternally with the Lord. That's the gospel. And we need to proclaim it in all of its simplicity, with all of its power. Let's don't complicate it. Don't make it hard for people to hear 
and respond. I mentioned to, to, to uh, the men's group Wednesday morning, uh, I have a friend who works with high school kids here in the area. And uh, he works with kids that, uh, that would never darken the door of, of a church. Never. If at least uh, superficially, they seem to have no uh, interest in spiritual things. But, but this man knows the hunger of their heart. And he wants to reach them right where they are. And uh, he's, he's built relationships with them. And they're around him all the time. You can drive by his house any hour of the day or night. And there are pickup trucks and, and motorcycles and, and uh, uh, kid cars all over the place around his house. And, you know, they're just hanging around him. But one of the things that, that struck me about, this, uh, about his house is that uh, uh, he has spittoons located in various places in the house. He, they, it's a lovely home. And they have beautiful carpets on the floor. And in the corners are spittoons. Because the kids that hang around this man uh, chew tobacco. And they put a pinch between gum and cheek. And so he puts the spittoons out. There's no sign on the door that says, leave your chaw outside. Can't come in here with your chewing tobacco or with your snuff. Because he doesn't want to put anything in their way of coming to know Christ. Because you don't have to give up chewing tobacco to be his friend. You don't have to give it up to come to Christ. He just wants people to know. wants these kids to know that Jesus loves them just the way they are. So we need to proclaim it in all of its simplicity and with all of its power. Now, uh, Paul says in verse 12, because he is a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, he suffers. Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, that's the way my text reads, the New American Standard Bible. But the phrase that's translated here, what I have entrusted to him in the text, is one, is just two words, my deposit. I know that he is able to guard my deposit. Now here is uh, one of the few instances where I want to take issue with the New American Standard translators. Because I don't think that, that's, that Paul is talking about what he entrusted to Christ. You get that impression from this, from this verse that he is talking about himself. God is able to guard what I have entrusted to Christ. That is myself and my salvation. Now that's true. God is able to guard our salvation. That's taught in other places in scripture. But I think what Paul is talking about here is that God is able to guard my deposit. That is the deposit that was given to Paul. His gospel. Paul uh, so frequently points out that the other apostles did not have an edge on him. That he didn't take... uh, he wasn't second to any of the apostles. The same revelation that was given to the apostles by the, by the Lord was given to him. That's what he calls his gospel. Not because it was different from the other apostles' gospel. Same gospel. But it was his because it was given to him by the Lord himself. That's what he's talking about here. God's able to guard the deposit. And if you follow the argument, what he's saying is that the deposit was given to him. The treasure was entrusted to him. In verse um, 14... He says to Timothy, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the good deposit which has been entrusted to you. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. These entrust, verb form of the noun to deposit, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you you see his argument. I was given this gospel. 
Timothy, I'm passing it on to you. Now you pass it on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And God is well able to guard it. People come and go. Philosophies come and go. Mostly they go. But the gospel endures. As Isaiah put it, the, uh, the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. You and I come and go. But the gospel endures. Now, Timothy, I received this gospel from the Lord himself. That's my deposit. I'm giving it to you. You pass it on to others. Now, that's the argument of the rest of the section. Now, there are two other uh, manifestations or illustrations of reality. I'm out of time, and this thing's going to retract any minute now. But I simply want to note them. Verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The sound words to which Paul refers here is the correct doctrine which he received from the Apostle Paul. He tells us, he tells Timothy that the sound words are those which Timothy heard from him. It's the body of apostolic teaching that we call the gospel. This is the gospel. The gospel is more than the simple facts of our, of our salvation. It, it embodies uh, everything that's revealed to us by the apostles. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. These are the sound words. This is the correct doctrine. This inerrant Bible that we have is the pattern by which we are to order our lives. I don't know how sensitive you've been to uh, the sort of things that are appearing on television lately, but it has struck me this year, in a way that it hasn't in the past, how much at sea people are. The the strange, twisted, distorted morality that you you see on television, uh, particularly in in the new shows. It's amazing. People do not know what's up. They don't have any foundation for belief. They don't know what's right any longer. They're grasping at straws. Like a cartoon I saw recently showed a, depicted a clergyman with a turnaround collar talking to a, a woman, and he had a coffee cup, a cup in his hand. And he says to her, I'm still against sin. I just don't know what qualifies any longer. Now, that's the problem. See, we, we have a sense that certain things are wrong, but we don't know what's wrong and what's right. We don't know any longer if it's wrong to abort children, and so we have put to death 19 million little people in their mother's womb. We have tripled Hitler's record. He sent 6 million Jews up the chimney. We put 19 million people in trash cans, and nobody knows if it's right or if it's wrong. Nobody knows if it's right or wrong to be gay. Is it all right for a man to fall in love with another man? And to express that love sexually and live together? Is it wrong for two women to live that way? No one seems to know. I had a letter from a, a, a woman from another city about my column two weeks ago about uh, the homosexual issue. And uh, she just expressed uh, thanks uh, to me for writing the column because she said, I really have not known until this point what the Bible has to say about this issue. And I thought that that we were wrong to say that homosexuality is sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul makes it very clear it's sin. It's not the worst sin in the world. 
It's probably the most dehumanizing thing we can do to our bodies, but it's, it's certainly not the worst sin. But it is sin. And the only way to deliver someone who, who is living a gay lifestyle is to let him know that it's sin and love them with the love of Christ and, and help them to see that Christ can deliver them from that, from that, uh, that way of living. You see, that's what Paul means when he says to Timothy, retain the pattern of, of sound words. You're not at sea morally. You have a place to stand. Uh, Archimedes said that if he had a long enough lever and a fulcrum and a place to stand, he could move the world. This is our, our Archimedean place to stand. It's reality. It's truth. We don't have to guess at morality anymore. We know what it is. It's here in, in God's Word. And so Paul says to Timothy, one of, the, one of the marks of a true believer is that he'll retain the pattern of sound words. He'll have a set of truths to live by. And then finally, uh, in verse 14, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And I don't have time to comment on that verse except to say that Paul is here talking about attacks upon the faith itself. Defend the gospel, he's saying. We live in an age uh, of ambiguity where people are laid back and uh, where uh, the search is the important thing. Uh, no one seems to, to care whether or not there are absolutes. Ambiguity is the order of the day. Reflection. Ponder things, but you don't have to be convinced. You don't have to be convicted. As someone asked Marilyn Monroe what, uh, shortly before she died what she believed in. She said, well, I believe in everything a little bit. And unfortunately, that's... That's the prevailing atmosphere in our world today. People believe in almost everything a little bit, but they're not committed to anything. Paul says, in that kind of a climate, defend the gospel. Be able to give a word, give an explanation for, uh, for what you believe. Guard it. Stick up for it. These, then, are the marks, I believe, of reality. If we really believe the gospel, we will share it. We will not be ashamed of it. And we'll be assured of it, both in ourselves in terms of a, of a, of a practical guideline for morality, and we will defend it from attacks. Now, what follows in the chapter is an illustration of one who had the real thing and who was not ashamed of it. Verse 15, you're aware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. I'll probably come back and talk more about this next week because I this is such a... a Wonderful character, and I hate—I really can't do him justice in the time it's left. But in contrast to all those in Asia who had, who had uh, deserted the Apostle Paul, who would not be associated with him in his suffering, who were embarrassed by the gospel and, and fled, in contrast to all in Asia, this dear, this dear brother, Onesiphorus, searched for the Apostle Paul and looked for him in Rome until he, uh, until he found him. And as Paul puts it, he was not ashamed of my chains. And I personally believe that Onesiphorus died 
because of his association with, with Paul. He was martyred because of the way he's referred to in the book. He's never referred to directly. Uh, Paul in chapter 4 speak, sends a word of greeting in Ephesus to the household of Onesiphorus. And here he prays that God will amp- amply reward him for his faithfulness. But he doesn't seem to be alive any longer. He apparently lost his life because he was unashamed of, of the apostle and of the apostle's gospel. Now, th- those are the marks of the real thing. And we need to take them seriously. We mustn't be ashamed of the gospel. But we must share it. And we must be assured of its truth. Because it's the only thing that can save people. It's the only thing we have to say to our world. The only answer that we can give is the gospel. Now, perhaps you're here and you've never believed the gospel. May I I close by reading another statement of Malcolm Mugridge's? He says, when I, so I came back to where I began, to that other king, one Jesus, to the Christian notion that, that man's efforts to make himself personally and collectively happy and in earthly terms are doomed to failure. He must indeed, as Christ said, be born again, be a new man, or he is nothing. So at least I have concluded, having failed to find any alternative proposition, as far as I am concerned, It is Christ or nothing. Let's pray. If the gospel is new to you, if you've never heard it in its simplicity, you need to understand what Jesus is saying. As he put it in another place, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He wants you to rest from your own efforts from your attempts to try to be something and be somebody apart from from his life in you. And he he wants you to surrender your, your life to him. And if you do so, he'll give you rest from all the striving and struggling that makes life so hard. Will will you just say in your heart, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Be Lord of my life. And he'll come in. He'll begin to to make you what what you've secretly longed to be all of your life. He'll make a real man or a real woman out of you. And for those of us who are inclined to to shrink from the gospel, we need to pray that, that we'll be more bold, more forthright, more loving and and, uh, and yet courageous in our proclamation of the truth. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, for this good word, this bracing word that puts starch in our spine and, and makes us want to call upon you and all of your resources to be what we actually are. We want to live lives that are in concert with the truth that we believe. We know that if we truly believe the gospel, We will share it. We will be willing to suffer for it. We will assure our hearts that it's true by faith. So we ask that these things would be so. And as we go from this place and and we spend time with our friends who don't know you through the week, that, that we'd look for opportunities 
to show them love and and personal care in, in small ways, in practical ways, and we'll we'll seek for opportunities to make the gospel known. Use us, Lord, in this way this week. Use us to save people for your sake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.